Good morning. All right, open your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18 today. Uh, Ryan blessed me with an opportunity to preach today and share with you from the Word. And I said, Ryan, so what's up? What's the topic? And he said, Dale, this is a week that's kind of sandwiched between two series. Next week, we start a new series. So he says, you got, you got open book. I mean, you can go anywhere you want, which is like my favorite thing to do. So I chose Matthew chapter 18, and you'll see why in a minute. There's also an outline provided. This will help you if you want to take a few notes and follow along. Um, that's up to you, but my advice is you'll catch a little more of what we have to share. Um, you know, it's, it's a joy to tackle uh, the Gospels and especially some of what I like to call the crazy sayings of Jesus. Now, I'm not calling Jesus crazy, uh, but I am saying that sometimes some of the most powerful lessons that Jesus Christ ever taught his disciples started with a surprise, or they were worded in a way that would kind of shock people, like, what? what, what what's up with that? What, what's he mean by that? And today, we're going to go to just one of those passages in Matthew chapter 18. But let me set the context first, because without the context, you're going to miss the power of what this lesson is about. Uh, the disciples had been tracking with Jesus for a while now. In fact, if you go back before Matthew 18, if you go back into Matthew 16, they saw miracle after miracle. Jesus, they had seen enough miracles to be convinced that he really was the Son of God, that he really was Messiah. In fact, last week in Matthew 17, Ryan made reference to in Matthew 17 where Jesus took his disciples to this uh, wicked place of the worship of false gods. <clears throat> and with that as the background, he said, all right, who am I? Who do people say that I am? Remember? And then he asked them, all right, so who do you say that I am? And it was there in Caesarea Philippi where Becky and I had the honor of being about three weeks ago, actually, in Israel. We were right on that spot where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you didn't get this from man, you got this from God. You are right on target. So they knew that the miracle worker was there. They knew that Jesus was Messiah. And then you go to Matthew chapter 17, actually, again, and, and what you see there is the transfiguration in Matthew 17. It was actually Matthew 16 where they had the encounter uh, that we just described. But in Matthew 17, Jesus takes uh, his three key guys, uh, Peter, James, and John, and he says, I want you to come with me. He takes them up on a mount, up on a high point where he has this experience called the Mount of Transfiguration. Now imagine being with Jesus, and you actually all of a sudden see Jesus talking with who? Do you know? Moses and Elijah. Yeah, Moses and Elijah, and, and the three of them are transfigured before their eyes, meaning they are in their spiritual bodies. Uh, so now all of a sudden you see their eternal spiritual body exhibited right in front of your eyes, and you're, you're watching them talk, and you're watching this. You're watching this. Jesus, Moses, Elijah, all in front of you, all transfigured. And, and then all of a sudden, as they go away, you hear a voice out of heaven say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, you can imagine the sense of expectation that they're living with at this point. They've been told that this is the king, 
They've been told that the kingdom is coming, that the kingdom of, of God is in your midst and the king is here and miracles are happening and this transfiguration thing happens and then the voice out of heaven speaking to them, listen to him, he's really my son. And they're expecting something exciting. They know that the king is here, the kingdom of God is going to be coming to earth. They're not real sure, they're still kind of confused what that's going to look like, but they're thinking, and guess what? Jesus handpicked us to help rule in his kingdom. I mean, they, we are the right-hand guys. We're his team. He picked us. He's been teaching us. Now, I don't know about you, but the temptation when you have that going on is what happens next. Because if you were among that group, you and I, as much as we'd like to think we wouldn't, probably would ask this question. Chapter 18, verse 1. Pick it up. Here we go. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. This is right after the transfiguration. At that time, they came to Jesus, and they said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is not a new question. Uh, this is not a theoretical question. They're looking at themselves. They're looking up and down the circle of his disciples saying, all right, who do you say, Jesus, which one of us are greatest? Now, this is not a new question. In fact, Mark chapter 9, verse 34 says this. Mark 9, 34. Write it down. Look it up later. But it says this. It says, often when they were walking along, they would debate which of them was greatest. Jesus knew this. This was a favorite topic of these guys, you know, because there's going to be some order in the kingdom, and we're all going to be ruling with Jesus, but somebody's going to be on his right hand and on his left hand. And, and, and this was a common debate that grew out of their own sense of prideful excitement. All right, Jesus, who is it? Tell us. What happens next is what I call the surprise answer. The grown-up question that is not to be ignored is, who then is the greatest in the question? I call it the grown-up question because that's what, that's what mature people ask, is I know I'm getting better, but how do I stack up against other people, especially my peers? That's the grown-up question, but Jesus gives a surprise answer, and he says this. Here it is. So he called a child to himself and set him before them. Now, if you want to picture this, by the way, the Greek word here means not just, I mean, all of us are children of God, right? But this is the word for a little child, for a young child. In fact, if, if, you, want to, if you want to picture this, he says this next. He says he gets the child and he sets them in their midst, it actually means. Verse 3, and then he said, truly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, if you want to be great, be like this kid. And to help you picture the kid, I've actually got a picture of him. Here it is. Boom. Boom. Uh, it's not the actual kid from the first century, but no, but that's uh, Josiah and Asher, uh, two of my grandsons. I love to show off my grandchildren. You can tell they don't get their looks from their grandpa, but anyway, yeah. 
ages six and five. Yeah, but maybe someday they will, so they shouldn't be laughing right now, right? They do say you get the hair gene from your mother's father, yeah. So one of them is in good shape and the other one, not so good. <clears throat> but what he's saying is, picture a little kid like this that he can put on his lap and he says, okay, I'll answer your question. Who's greatest? This kid's greatest. Not any of you. And in fact, if you want to be great, and Jesus, Jesus doesn't scold them for wanting to be great. But he says, you've got to understand, real greatness begins with having the humility. He mentions two things. Unless you humble yourself like this child, and then he says, unless you are converted and unless you have the heart and the soul of a child inside your big adult body, you'll never be great. It's as if, if I were to contemporize this story, it's kind of like Jesus was being interviewed um, and, and Sports Illustrated is about to pick their man of the year. Okay, picture this. And, and, and all the reporters, including SI, Sports Illustrated is interviewing people, taking a survey, who's the greatest? Is it LeBron? And the finalists are, let's make them up, LeBron, uh, maybe Stephon Curry, Maybe Messi, if you're a soccer fan. Uh, anyone else? Give me another nomination. Woods. Tiger Woods, lately. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you got, okay, so you got Tiger, LeBron, Stefan, Messi. And they said, but which of these are the greatest, Jesus? And Jesus reaches down and he, and he sees this little snotty-nosed kid, about a five-year-old kid with his autograph book. And he picks the kid with the autograph book up. He says, if you really want to be great, be like this kid. See how that would shock people? That's exactly what Jesus is trying to teach you and me today. So if you want to be great, what is he saying? Let me begin to break it down. The overall big idea is this, that childlike faith and humility uh, is a kingdom essential in the kingdom of God, that you should never, ever outgrow. Now, the Bible often talks about us growing spiritually. You know, spiritually, he says, don't be like children, but grow up in your faith. So you, 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 do, you do need to have a grown-up faith, but a grown-up faith, according to Jesus, has the heart and soul of a child. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, it sounds like, well, that's a cute story, but what the heck does it mean? I mean, how do I judge and evaluate myself even to say, okay, how am I doing? How am I doing being like this kid in terms of my relationship with my God at my age today? How am I doing? And so let me break it down. First, there's three things that I see in verses two through four. Number one, it says this. He says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted or change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing he points is this, humility never comes naturally. It's not a natural thing that we uh, are humble. Our natural tendency, especially as we grow and mature in life and achieve things in life, is to become more prideful, not more humble. That's the danger that Jesus is warning against. It doesn't come naturally. It begins with what Jesus calls 
conversion or being converted. We'll come back to that in a minute. But notice it doesn't come naturally. In fact, I would contend it's a lifelong struggle, that you never overcome the struggle or the danger of pride. How do I know that? Let's take the most mature Christian in the New Testament. Who would that be? Give me some nominations. Yeah, the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, he kind of writes more than half of the New Testament. Uh, He's the leader of the missional movement. He's got this incredible story. But yet Paul says this, that God had to give him a thorn in his flesh in order to do what? In order to humble him, to keep him humble. So even the Apostle Paul, with all of his insights and wisdom and, and, and everything, says, look, I need something in my life that keeps me humble because my tendency is to drift toward pride, especially when I'm doing well. See, when we're struggling spiritually, our temptation is not pride. That kind of humbles us sometimes. But it's when we're really having a good week or a good month or maybe even a good year, and you're saying, wow, you know, I'm really growing spiritually. My life is kind of working, and I'm, 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 I'm kind of proud of how much Jesus is changing me. You know, look who I'm becoming. You know, that's when we're tempted to, uh, to bite on pride. So you've got to guard against it, especially in seasons of success or blessing. Number two, he says the secret is being converted. Therefore, humility begins with our new birth. It doesn't come naturally. It begins with this concept of conversion or the, the new birth. It's the same thing Jesus talked about with a little bit prideful religious leader named Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, remember? And Jesus said, hey, Nicodemus, yeah, you're a great guy. You know Scripture. You memorized a bunch of it, blah, blah, blah. You do all the righteous deeds, but you must be born again or born from above. It could be translated in the Greek language. You, you need a spiritual birth to go with your physical birth, Nicodemus, because you need a new heart. And to get a new heart and, 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 and to be brought alive spiritually, it begins the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ, put our trust in him instead of ourself, in his good work on the cross for us instead of our good works for him, put our faith in Christ, experience his grace, and, and we are born spiritually. That's what that means. And, and when we are born spiritually, Jesus says that's the first essential if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God. And that's the first thing that helps us begin to have more of a humble heart. Never comes naturally, begins with the new birth. And then thirdly, humility, therefore, because Jesus is teaching his disciples, must be an ongoing essential for true greatness. That if you want to be great spiritually, and you can be great spiritually by the power of God, by the presence of his spirit, by his word and his body uh, bringing you to maturity. It is possible to mature. It's possible to be great instead of good as a follower of Jesus. But if you want to be great, he's saying you got to learn the lesson of having childlike faith. That's at the heart of it. So that's what I mean by the paradox. Here's how I state the paradox that the most mature people in Christ never, ever grow up. Want to say that with me? Let's read that together. The paradox is those most mature in Christ never, ever grow up, meaning you don't outgrow your childlike faith. 
You grow spiritually, you mature spiritually, but another way to say it is this. They may grow old or mature, but they keep the heart and faith of a child. I think that's what Jesus is saying, that somehow he wants us to be growing in wisdom and the knowledge of God, but yet at the same time, wake up every day and relate to God as your heavenly father, and you're still his kid. And you know something? You're okay with that. You're okay with being the kid. You're okay. When I think of kids, remember now, Jesus is saying, be like this little child. He didn't pick up a teenager because teenagers are not the role model. (laughs) Can we all agree on that? You bet. Have we all been there, those of us who are beyond that phase of life? Yes. Remember that? Yeah, I remember I had a discussion with my uh, 12, soon-to-be 13-year-old grandson. We were riding in the car together, and we got into a, a, a whole discussion. In fact, I, and I think we actually was talking, we were talking about sex and God's wisdom and things like this, and, 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 uh, and it was interesting. Uh, and, oh, yeah, and we were talking about uh, drinking, too, alcohol, sex, all, that, all those fun topics you want to talk through with a 12-year-old, right? And, and I told him, I said, now, you realize that God's, you know, God's perspective is he, he's, he's trying to, when he, when he says save sex till marriage, and at least in our culture it says save alcohol till at least you're 21, I said, these are, these are things to protect you, not to rob you of fun, but protect you. Because, you know, and I said this to him, I said, in fact, medical research has proven that the brain of a, of a teenager is not fully really developed enough to make smart decisions. And, and he came right back at me and, and he surprised me. He said, you're right on that because I got a lot of friends and they do dumb stuff. <laughs> He's, you know, and here he is. He's got the wisdom to see. Yeah, at my age, I do dumb stuff. I do dumb stuff. He told me about a couple of dumb things he did. You want to hear him? <laughs> I'm not going to tell on him. But they were dumb. But they weren't any dumber than the things I did when I was his age. And that makes me know there's hope. <laughs> so what's it mean? I mean? We could stop the sermon right here, but I thought, what's it mean to relate to God the Father And no matter how mature I become in Christ, how many years I walk with him, what's it mean to still have the heart of a child? And and right as I was struggling with this, trying to figure it out, I I went back and I said, well, you know, Jesus tells us how to pray. Uh, It's called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the model prayer that he gives for his disciples, right? Right? And in, the, in this model prayer, teaching us how to pray, I went back and read it to see how much childlike faith is, 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 is baked into it. And I found it from beginning to end. So here's what we're going to do. I want to take you through the Lord's Prayer. If you want to look it up, you can. But if not, just listen. I'm going to put it on the screen piece by piece. But it's found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and following. And Jesus says, pray this way. And I believe it's a model prayer of childlike faith. Here it goes. And if you know parts of it, you can say it with me or just listen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
So where do I see childlike faith? It's childlike faith believes my dad can do anything. My dad can do anything. You can write that down, by the way. I'm giving you an outline if you want to capture these things and reflect on them this week. My dad can do anything. And when I was a little kid, I remember believing my dad could do anything. My dad can whip your dad. You ever thought that or said that? Now, some of you may have not had dads around. I think for this sermon's sake, it's okay to think of your parents, your dad or your mom for that matter. It's like my parents, they, they can do anything. They can fix anything. They know everything. They're super smart. I, I just had this elevated, probably overly elevated view of my dad and my mom. But that should be how we relate to our God, because he really can. He really can do anything. Becky was teaching a class of first graders years ago. And in the class, she had a little sharing time. Before we pray, is there anything we can pray for? And, and this one little first grade boy was real sad, and he said, uh, you can pray for me because this is a sad week. And he said, what's going on? He says, my dog died this week. And... You know, you got, your heart goes out to the kid. And, and Becky asked the class, okay, so, you know, how, how can Jesus help our friend whose dog just died? And Becky was expecting someone to say, well, Jesus would come and give him a hug. And no, this one little kid in the class, little blonde-haired kid, blue eyes, he says, that's easy. Jesus would look at the dog and he'd say, dog, arise. <laughs> You know, I'm not just going to hug the kid. I'm just going to resurrect the dog. But, you know, when you hear about that, you think, well, yeah, God can do that. He could resurrect a dead dog just like he resurrects Dale. Okay? But that's what I mean. A childlike faith, well, he doesn't limit God. Number two. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I read that, I think a childlike faith says, you know, I trust my dad or my parents. I, I trust my heavenly father. Um, it's a simple faith that believes that, you know, dad's never lost, always knows the way, always has the answer. And dad's way is the best way. Now, again, do teenagers think this way? Yes or no? No. So do, you got to forget the teenagers for this morning, okay? We love them, but don't think about them right now. Um, even the college students, we love them a lot. New ministry, everything. But think of these little toddlers. See, a little toddler, you know, a little toddler who cannot swim will stand on the edge of the pool and when dad reaches out and says, just jump in, what's he do? Boom. He launches. He launches out. I got ready to. Scared you, didn't I? Okay, yeah. Yeah, he launches out. Why? Because he trusts his dad. Dad's faithful. Dad's going to catch me. Dad's got this covered. If dad says do it, I'm going to do it. I can trust my dad. See, that's a childlike faith. So therefore, here's how we need to pray. Here me give a little extra prayer tip on this one. Be careful giving God your solutions when you pray because he has a global, eternal perspective that you don't have. 
Now, it doesn't mean you can't ever ask God for a solution. You know, because a lot of times we have a problem, we have a crisis we're facing, and we say, God, please heal this person, or God, please help me with this, or God, please provide this job, or, you know, I mean, it's okay to pray for solutions, but when you end that prayer with, thy will be done, amen, say it and mean it, because thy will is better than your solution. See, when I, here's, here's my simple approach to praying, okay? I look at life, I have a problem. Boom, I can see my problem. I can think, well, this would solve it, so I have a solution. So I ask for the solution. And then if God doesn't give me my solution, I get frustrated with God. God, I see the problem, I see the solution. Why aren't you giving me what I asked for? You know, and you just be careful doing that. Much better to, to really mean it when you say, but Lord, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done because I trust you. And because, God, I realize that when you look at my little problem, what what does God see? Does God see a solution? God sees a hundred different solutions, a hundred different actions, including letting you suffer with what you're suffering with right now. But God sees all of those solutions. But here's the cool thing about God. He even sees the ripple effect of every option down through time, globally and eternally. Wow. Most of us have gone through things in our life where we look back and we realize, oh man, I'm so glad now that God did not answer my prayer yes. Because God had a much better solution. Or God's solution may have been painful for me, but the impact on the world through it has been huge. So really be careful putting too much stock in your solution as opposed to trusting the Father to know what's best. That's what I mean. Pray like a little kid. Number three, I like this one. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. What that illustrates is what I call a childlike faith lives in relaxed dependence on God, taking life one day at a time. You're okay. I'm okay taking, I'm okay saying, God, give me this day my daily bread. He doesn't say, God, give me this day my IRA, (laughs) even though it kind of rhymes. Hey, God, can you give me early retirement? Hey, God, can you give me more of this or more of that? Hey, God, you know, uh, he instead is content to trust his father to provide one day at a time. And I think that's exactly how I was when I was a little guy. I can never remember growing up, and our family was not at all wealthy. My mom and dad pretty much lived from paycheck to paycheck. They had to refinance their house to help when my brother went to college. And they had to refinance it back then from 50 bucks a month to 100 bucks, no, from 100 bucks a month to 50 bucks a month to have 50 more dollars to live off of. They lived paycheck to paycheck. My dad was a blue collar guy. Finished high school in the Navy in World War II while going to fight for D-Day in the channel. Those kind of guys. But I never remember my dad, uh, I never worried that I wouldn't have something to eat the next day. 
Now you say, well, yeah, Dale, you were a dumb kid. <laughs> no. I was a kid who believed my dad got this covered. My dad will take care of me. I don't have to plan for my own. What, what am I going to do tomorrow to make sure I have something to eat? No, I could relax. I could have what I like to call this relaxed dependence upon God instead of myself. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't do my best to have a job, work hard, uh, try to move up the ladder, whatever. There's nothing wrong with seeking to be great or to achieve or to earn. Nothing wrong. In fact, laziness is condemned in Scripture. So I'm to work hard and use my best of what God gives me to do the best I can do and see what happens. But in, underneath it, is it up to me to guarantee my security? Is it the size of my bankroll or is it the size of my God? When I was a little kid, I was okay with Dad covering it. Dad had it covered. When I thought of modern-day illustrations of this that Becky and I have observed, we talked about this, and I think one illustration was uh, when we go to Rwanda to train pastors. We'll be going again in October. Um, Every time we go, we visit some pastors and some of their people from their church who have come to Christ, and we often go into a, in this case, it was a rainy day. We went into a mud hut, typical Rwandan mud hut built out of their front yard, <laughs> literally. They build them out of mud bricks that they make. Uh, and we went in this one-room house, probably, I'd say, 10 by 15 foot in size. That's their home. And uh, we went in there and sat on a little wooden bench, and we met these two couples. One of them in particular, this was their home. And as they shared their story, they talked about uh, their, their life before Christ and how it was really bad. The husband said, I used to pretty much just drink banana beer and beat my wife. But since coming to know Jesus, um, I no longer beat my wife. And he just smiled and she smiled and they started describing their life and they said, and now we've learned as Christians how to be good stewards of what God gives us. And he says, in fact, they pointed in the corner where there was a white bucket like we get uh, paint in, you know, the big uh, five gallon buckets, right? Or two gallons, whatever, five gallon, I think. They had one of these five gallon buckets with a spigot on it. And they said, in fact, we have one of these water filters now. This is where we filter our water. Of course, they got to go to the river and get it in big uh, eight-gallon jugs and carry it every day. But, you know, wow, we are so blessed. We even have a water filter. And this year, we built a toilet. We got a toilet. What they mean by a toilet is is an outhouse, by the way, with a hole that you stand over. But we didn't used to have that. They say we have a toilet outside and a water filter and, and, and in spite of our past life, they said, and we just found out that, and we have a vegetable garden, and they showed that to us, that they'd been taught how to raise these vegetables for their nutrition. And they said, and, and, and we just found out that our three kids are all HIV free when my husband and I have it. So we are so blessed. And, and then the, the wife said, what more could we ask? What more could we want in life? Got a veggie garden and a water filter and an outhouse, 
and kids that don't have HIV. And that is the good life. And I walked away from there feeling, man, God, I wish I had their level of contentment. Because if that's all I had, I probably wouldn't be feeling real good. But that's what I mean. See, they have childlike faith. They don't have any savings for the future, but they're trusting with a relaxed dependence upon their Heavenly Father. He's going to take care of us. Dad's got this covered. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others, the Lord's Prayer says. This is a childlike faith that learns grace from their Father and gives it freely to others. See, in other words, forgive us our sins as we, we forgive others. And it's in response to the grace of God. That's the idea. Growing up, do you ever spill the milk? Yes or no? You bet. Man, I spilled the milk. Did you ever screw something up? Did you ever break something? Did you ever just have a bad day and a bad attitude and sass your mom or your dad? Yeah, we've all done all of that. But yet, even though they may discipline us out of love, but hopefully they forgive us. Man, if, you have, if you're a parent and you're still refusing to forgive your kids for stuff they did, especially when they were little guys, that's pretty bad. But hopefully you grow up experiencing grace and you begin to learn grace and you come to know Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace and that motivates and enables us to be full of grace toward others where we forgive others just as we have been forgiven. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What's that mean? I think it's that children fear the darkness and they like to stick close to dad. See, when he says, uh, Father, lead us not into temptation, there, you're expressing an awareness that, you know something, there's, there's dangerous temptations out there that I can't handle on myself. You're humble enough to admit that and, and, and protect us from the evil one, deliver us from the evil one. Um, you want to stay close to your heavenly father, to your God, because you realize this is a dangerous world. Scripture says we battle not just against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. You know, I don't, I'm not the type of person that identifies every problem and links it to a demon somewhere, but the reality is there is a spiritually powerful world against you who wants to take you down and living with childlike humility is saying God I realize I need your help dealing with temptation I need your help being protected from the evil one a story that happened just three weeks ago Becky and I were on the we were invited actually as guest missionaries of another church that supports us in our work in Africa and they had a busload of people about 50 people going to Israel on a tour. And they graciously invited us to come along at their cost to just interact with their people. I, incredible blessing. So we were enjoying that time. But one of the highlights for us was not an archaeological site. It was a contemporary site. We went to Bethlehem, right? Birthplace of Jesus, right? Old little town of Bethlehem, right? 
Okay. Bethlehem used to be 65% Christian and the balance mostly Muslim. Today, Bethlehem is 20% Christian and most of that 20% are Eastern Orthodox or different wings of Christianity that, to be real honest, it's, it's about formal, uh, it's just not filled with the gospel. Let me just say that. We visited the only remaining evangelical pastor and church in Bethlehem. There's only one. They can't have a sign on the street because of all the threats that they get cast on them being persecuted. You have to know where it is. In fact, I'm not allowed to post pictures of, of it, even though I took them. We went up a set of stairs to the upper room of this building where the church meets. And we listened and heard some amazing stories of how the gospel of Christ and the grace of God is being taught and transforming lives and, and even some, uh, even Muslims are coming to Christ. People from uh, Eastern Orthodox backgrounds are coming to Christ. Uh, Non-Christians are coming to Christ and they're growing but we also heard stories of how they, they have received direct threats from the Muslim community in Bethlehem that they are praying. The imams have said, we are praying for the death of your children because of what you're doing, taking life away from Muslims who come to Christ. Now, this stuff goes on, men and women. And then we found out as we asked, how can we pray for you? we found out they began to weep, especially the wife of the pastor, because her own daughter was engaged to be married to a wonderful Christian guy. And she said just two weeks ago, this was back then, a couple weeks before that, um, he had been killed in a, in, a, in a car crash. And they were being told that, see, this is your punishment because we've been praying for the death of your children. How would you like, how would you like it if just identifying as a follower of Jesus caused your neighbors to pray for the death of your children? But this is what many Christians around the world deal with in many countries. So, you know, we, we are concerned about our persecution. You know, we don't face anything like these dear people. But yet, in the midst of that, they talked about just pray that we will stay close to God because he is our strength. He is our protector. We have nothing to fear if we are with him, walking with him. The safest place to be in the world is in the will of God. The most dangerous place to be in the world is outside of the will of God where you're not walking with him and he's not walking with you and then you have something to be afraid of. That's what I mean. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. When I was a little kid, when I got scared, I knew where to run. I ran right to my mom or my dad. And last but not least, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That's how it ends. Kind of a triumphant. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. God, don't do For thine is the kingdom, the power, and glory forever. Amen. It's not that. It's thine. For yours, God, thine is the kingdom, 
Yours is the only kingdom that matters. Thine is the kingdom, the power. You have the power. You get the glory. Amen. Amen. See, that's the triumphant. Here's what I call that. It's like a little kid who has a daily sense of joyful, confident expectation. Man, when I was a little kid, I didn't fear anything. I didn't fear my future. I had a joyful, confident expectation. I can go out and play and enjoy life knowing my dad's got it covered. I can rest knowing he's going to provide for me. I can ask for his kingdom to advance, not mine. And I, and I wasn't all hung up on building my little kingdom, building my empire, climbing the ladder. And I started doing that later as a teenager. But when I was a little kid, dad's got this. My mom and dad, they got it covered. I could relax and enjoy life, knowing too that his kingdom is coming someday. An awareness that in the end, Christ wins and his kingdom will reign and we'll be a part of it. And that's exciting to anticipate that. Little kids anticipate that. They really believe it. We just study it. They believe it. I saw this firsthand when my grandson was up on our upper deck of our home and on a really nice day, this is what we see at the end of the day. That's the tree behind our house. Beautiful. The ocean's actually out there over that setting sun. And we're distant from it, but it's there. Trust me. I look at that and I think, wow, that's pretty. Glad I own a view of that. But my grandson saw that with his grandma that he calls Nani. And all of a sudden, he walked out on the patio and saw her looking at that. And his response was, Nani, is Jesus coming now? Because this kind of looks cool. He lives in Escondido and never saw this. <laughs> yeah. Is this what it's going to look like when Jesus comes? But see the joyful expectation, childlike faith. So here's the lesson of the morning. You want to be great, not, you, not, not just a good follower of Jesus. You want to be a great follower of Jesus. That's okay. Aspire to that. But to do that, you got to keep a childlike heart, childlike faith, that you never, ever grow up. Father God, thank you for your word and the lessons we learned from it. I pray that you... Dear Father, would help us to uh, put our trust in you and your dear Son, the Lord Jesus, your Spirit that indwells us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your ability to deal with anything. Help us, Father, to maintain a, a faith that is like the trust of a little child. And may we never outgrow that. In Christ's name, amen.